Morning, brothers and sisters. How are we this morning? Good. We're going to be looking today. If I ever get this thing to work. Um, we talked last week, last two weeks ago, about teaching and conviction. What do you remember from that talk? Don't do that to me. We have to learn if we're going to teach it. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Okay, if we're going to if we're going to teach it, we have to what? Live it. All right. And what's the importance of teaching it? We have to model it, and the children have to understand the what? The standard that God has laid out, correct? And we have to have our children begin to see that the authority for what we're telling them comes from where? God, from the Scripture. Because if it's just you telling them because you think this is the right thing to do, they're not going to understand the importance of it, are they? What's the importance of conviction? So we talk about teaching and then conviction. Okay, this is to action, and it, our job as parents is once we've taught them the word, when they violate the word, we must do what? We must bring that to their attention. We have to bring this to their attention. Now, this doesn't apply with children. This applies with husbands and wives. This applies with people within the church. That when, when someone has violated God's word, we have to gently bring it to their attention and let them see how they violated God's word. And so, really, you become a prosecuting attorney in this situation. You help ask the questions that bring them to a point of seeing what they've done. And why is this important? Well, it's because of our nature. We have a problem, don't we? We're sinful people, and we've been affected by sin in every aspect of our lives. And so, something, so when we do something, we always have a good reason why we did it, don't we? Whatever it is, there's always some reason. And if we don't have one, when we find out we're caught, we're going to begin to create one. And it can become quite elaborate. And we can either find something else to blame for it or our situation. So our hearts are deceitfully wicked, aren't they? And who can know that? With the Spirit of God living in us, there's times when there's things that we do that we have completely rationalized away. And we're in need of someone to come help us. This is no different for our children. Our children quickly learn how to pass the blame from themselves to somebody else. Uh, they do those type of situations. And so it's going to be very important for us in the second phase of conviction to help bring it to the point where they are responsible. All right. Years ago, uh, it was the summer of 1983, I was getting ready to try. And I was doing some conditioning in my neighborhood. Actually, I lived out in the country. <clears throat> and I was running on the road. And I was running four or five miles. And a car was coming. So I got off the road and got into the ditch. And I was just running along. And all of a sudden, I had this incredibly stabbing pain in my left foot. And I got off the road. And what had happened is a neighbor had cut his grass. And somebody had thrown a bottle or two bottles into the grass. And they had been chopped up by the lawnmower. And one of these sharp shards was sticking up so when I came down with my foot it drove that drove that glass through 
my shoe and into my foot. So I knew I was, I knew I was because I was bleeding. And I knew I was in trouble because it hurt. And so I had to basically hobble, hop, if you will, on one foot for about two-tenths of a mile to get back to my house. Now, here's where our nurse kicks in. I found some glass in my foot. I pulled the glass out of my foot. I propped my foot up. And the last place I wanted to go was to the hospital. I don't know why I didn't want to do that, but I didn't want to go to the hospital. I thought that might be more painful. I didn't want any more pain. And so I propped my foot up, and I kept ice on it. But every time I'd bring it down, it would start to bleed again. And if I put any weight on it whatsoever, there was a stabbing pain in there. So finally, after hours of agonizing over what I was going to do with my foot, I went to the emergency room. And sure enough, when the doctor got there, he dug around inside my foot and pulled out some more shards of glass that were still in there. In order for my foot to be healed, all of that had to come out. Our natural tendency, either in this situation or in a situation where we have sinned, is we want to quickly patch it over and we want to move on. Because to look at why we did what we did, number one, to look at what we did, to look at why we did what we did is painful. It shows who we really are. It shows that we are people that are a result of the fall and that there is no good thing within us. And the, the problem is that, well, I would love to say that once we become a believer, that, that, that's all gone and we never have a problem with dealing with our sin again. But it's the case, is it? So just like us, our children are going to have the same propensity to rationalize, to minimize, and to try to pass over and move on. Now, I could have done that with my foot, and I could have been hobbling for weeks and causing more problems if I hadn't gone to the medical clinic and had them remove the problem. Child training is that way. If you can take this picture and put it into child training, we're trying to get down to the heart of the issue. This is what child training is. And today we're going to talk about correction. We've talked about conviction. It's one thing to, to help them understand what they've done, but now we have to help them understand how to correct what has happened. It's not just enough to say, you did that, that was wrong. Don't do it again. That is doing what? A superficial patch. That's what that is. And so today we're going to look at the whole issue of correction. The scripture is used for teaching, for conviction, and what? Correction. All right? And we need correction. We don't want correction. It's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. But we need correction to become. And what's the end goal? What's the end goal? To become like Christ. To become holy. So when we deal with, when these things happen, when we sin, we need someone to deal with this with us. Now, a lot of us should be getting to the point as, as Christians where we deal with this ourselves. When we see our sin, we should take these steps. So this lesson is going to have multiple levels. It's going to be dealing with you and your children. It's going to be dealing with you and yourself. 
How do you handle this? And how do you go through this process? And lastly, how do we deal with somebody else? Because we're a family, aren't we? And we'd love to say that. We and a lot of us, the sins that we commit, we overlook in brothers and sisters, don't we? And trust that God's spirit is going to work. But when we get to a point where something becomes so painful, it has to be dealt with. Then we have to deal with each other, don't we? In those ways. Okay. So let's talk about correction. Correction is to make right that which has gone wrong. Just to diagnose there's a problem and not to correct it uh, is not sufficient. Scripture, scripture is designed to help us correct the problem. What may need correcting? Sinful words, thoughts, actions, attitudes, and motives. A lot of times in our parenting, we just focus on the words and the actions, which is what? Surface. We've got to get down to the point of looking at the motive and looking at the attitude. Because then and only then do we see the real heart of sinful man. Only then do our children see the real heart, their own heart. Why would they be compelled to come to Jesus if they think they're a good person? Why would they be compelled if, if we have an excuse for every misbehavior they, they perform? Why would they be compelled to come to Jesus if we bribe them into being obedient? All those techniques are simply ways to get outward behavior, but we're not getting down to the root. We're not getting down to that glass that was driven deep into my foot and had to literally be opened up with a scalpel to pull and brought out. So as parents, we have to do surgery into the hearts of our children on a regular basis. That's time consuming, isn't it? So correction is a biblical process that we want to build into the fabric of our children's lives. We want to first help them by showing them how it's done and doing it with them so much to the point that when they get to be an adult, they can do it on themselves. They can walk through this process themselves, deal with their sin. It's interesting today we're doing, taking the Lord's Supper. And part of the Lord's Supper is to examine ourselves. And I would dare say that a lot of us in our examination, we would rather keep it kind of surface. Lord, forgive me, I've kind of had a bad week. What does that mean? Who knows? Because we don't have to deal with our what? Our sin, our heart, our motives. Those kind of things. So we're going to look at this, the process of correction. Here's the process. First is conviction, which we talked about last week. Second is repentance. You might want to write these down. Helps you remember. Third is confession. Fourth is seeking forgiveness. Fifth is restitution. That's a word that's gone from the vocabulary of our culture. Next is forsaking sin. And finally, restoration. 
And I'm really using Lou Priola's book, Teaching Children Diligently, Teach Them Diligently, as a good foundation for what I'm teaching today. Okay? Um, So it's conviction, repentance, confession, seeking forgiveness, restitution, forsaking sin, and restoration. So the first thing we have to do is acknowledge their sin here. And the next step is to bring them to a point of repentance. It's not enough to diagnose it. We have to bring them to the point where they agree with us. Where they see it for themselves. And, and we know from our own nature, it can be hard to see our own sin, can it? We just don't want to see that. And we'll do whatever we can to gloss over it. Repentance is to change one's mind. So you have the challenge in your own life and in your children's life to help them change their mind about what they have done. Okay? The purpose of correction is to cause a change of mind that will eventually change their what? Their life, their behavior, their character, their motive, their attitude. Something that will not just cover over the outside and they know, okay, I can't do that anymore because I'll get in trouble. That's not the motive here. The motive is to get down to the point where they see who they are and are troubled by it to the point they're willing to change by the grace of God. If conviction only leads to surface sorrow, a worldly sorrow, which is really a sadness over how my sin affects me. We're all sorry when we sin, aren't we? I am so sad I did that. I can't believe I did that. Why did I do that? Now look what it's done to me. That's godly sorrow. But it's surface because we're not dealing with how did it affect God? How did it affect his reputation? How did it affect those around me? What has God called me to be and what am I being right now? So if our, if our conviction only ends up in godly sorrow then there's not going to be any change. All we're going to do is figure out a way not to get caught next time. That will be the plan. Because we still haven't been changed in our mind to think, we shouldn't do that. That was wrong for all these reasons, and this shows who I am as a person, and I've got to go to God for help to become a different person. If we don't bring our children to that point then all we're going to get is surface behavior and it'll all be good when who's around when we're around and when we're not around everything comes out doesn't it okay change only occurs where there's godly sorrow that sees how my sin affects god and others This is what Paul was looking for with the man in 1 Corinthians 5 when he had him removed from the church for his behavior with his father's wife. He had him removed to the point that he experienced godly sorrow. And it took a while for him to come to the point. Sometimes it takes a while to get ourselves and our children to the point to really see our sin for what it is. There's not a quick fix. We can't get it done in two minutes. A couple of swats on the leg aren't going to solve the problem. It's going to take a deeper digging into the situation. 
In our first child training session, we talked about the purpose for God's people was to become like Jesus. Repentance is the first step. Repentance is our first step to salvation, isn't it? How does a person come to Christ? They first see their sin for what it really is, all the way down to their very core and their very nature of who they are as a person. And this is why in our culture we have a lot of people who name the name of Jesus, but they're really not saved. They've prayed a prayer. They've walked an aisle. They purpose to become more committed to being good. And they're always trying to do good. But they've never really had a change of mind about who they are. They've never had a change of mind about, about where they're headed. And unless we deal with people at this level where they really see their sin, then we're not going to bring about any real change. And they're not going to be saved. Because the purpose of the Spirit is to convict us of sin. And that's what this is talking about. Convict us of sin to the very core of our being. That we understand who we really are before God. That we're enemies of God. That I'm a rebel against God. That I hate God. And I hate God telling me what to do. We have to get to that point in repentance to where we'll turn. You know, a couple of years back, we, we, had some, we hosted some orphans from the Ukraine. And we had four boys. They were all between the ages of 12 and 14. And they were a family. And they came with us. And they were with us. And... So we had a, a quite an experience of six of six weeks with these with these children, and we went to a wedding. Actually, I did the wedding, and we're in the reception, and you know you know orphans sometimes they um, they don't have much, and so when they get a chance to get something, they're going to take it, and so there were all these little little uh, favors on the on the tables uh, with the address of the of the bride and groom and a special treat, right, and so those magically begin to disappear from all the tables. And we caught them, and they had their pockets stuffed full with these favors, and we had them put them back into uh, the place where they're supposed to put them back. We got home. We were there at this, we were staying at this house that we were renting, and um, so we got ready to leave the house. We were putting the furniture back, and we pulled the couch out, and there was this pile of these favors. So we get back home, and, you know, we're, sometimes parents are a little slow to pick up on things, right? All right? So we thought we had solved that problem. We told them about the importance of not stealing and all this and that. We gave them a little lecture. And so we were playing a game one night, and I, we were playing the game, and we couldn't find any of the money that went with the game. We were playing Monopoly, or we were playing some of the game that had money. And I began to look through all the games, and all the money in all the games in our house was gone. So I, so I went into their bedroom, and I said, we need to pull out your suitcases. So we began to pull out the suitcases and, of course, getting all the clothes out from on top. We got down to the bottom, got down deep. And down deep, there was all kinds of things I found. There were things from the house in North Carolina that we had stayed at that were there. There was, uh, there was real money that was there. There was all this Monopoly money that was there. And life money and all the other kinds of money that were there. And it was just a treasure trove of, of gifts. And... So we had a moment there where we really, I sat down with them and they were very scared because they knew 
that if they messed up, they could be sent back to their country and not stay. And so we talked about stealing. And we talked about what was wrong with stealing. And we talked about it was a violation of God's law. And we talked about the fact that we're all sinners. And this is a picture of why we're sinners. And they were very sober. They were thoughtful. Because they thought they were gone. And we talked about the fact that just as this is painful for me to find this out and to have to correct this problem, that one day they would stand before the judge of the world and that they would stand there to deal with all of their sin. And unless they had trusted Christ, there would be no remedy for that. And so we got past the surface. Oh, don't steal. Don't do that. We got down to the part of what they were as a person. We got down to their nature. And it presented an opportunity for what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we have to have with our children. We have to get down to that point. So in repentance, we're trying to gain a change of mind. Without the scriptures, you're not going to gain the change of mind. It's not going to be a lecture you give. It's going to be the word of God that you must bring to bear upon this process. And again, your goal is that this process that you take your children through, that they, as they mature and come to know Christ, that this will become a process they go through in their own lives for themselves and for their own children. Second is confession. So they must come to a point of actually being convinced that that what they have done is wrong before God and before man. Their, their thinking has to change. You know, Romans 12, 2 says, uh, do not conform me longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are we transformed? Our mind has to be renewed. How's our mind renewed? By meditating on the word of God. This is why when you and I don't, are not in the word, we can't help but go back to default mode. And what's default mode? I'm pretty good. I'm a good person and I don't do, do a lot wrong. And if I did something wrong, it really wasn't that bad and it's really okay. And this is why a lot of times our confession is very, very flippant and very superficial. Children who have sinned must be brought to a point of confessing with their mouth, their sin to God and to all other parties they have sinned against. So it's not enough for them to even have their mind changed. Now they must do what? They must actually speak it to people. If you remember watching, watching Happy Days, for those who watched Happy Days a long, long time ago, remember Fonzie, he had a hard time saying, I was wrong. He never could say wrong. He could never say he was wrong. I, I was And he would never be able to get that out. It's hard to say we're wrong, isn't it? Our children must plead guilty. The more general the confession it just shows that we really haven't got down to the depths of the situation. Things like, I'm sorry I wronged you. What does that mean? Or I'm sorry. I'm sure you are sorry. The orphans were sorry when they got caught with all the candy. You were sorry when you got caught with whatever you were doing. 
The question is, are we willing to call it sin? Our culture doesn't want to call it sin. We have all kinds of names for it, but it's not sin. Because sin is against God. So we rationalize, we minimize our sin. Now we can see it in others, can't we? Have we ever been on the other end where we're doing the question asking? And we watch a person rationalize. We're like, I can't believe they're rationalizing. Then the question comes your way. All of a sudden, the game changes. It really wasn't that big a deal. I really didn't mean to do that. You know, I, I just was confused. I'm not really sure what happened. Our memory goes out the window, doesn't it? I don't remember what happened exactly. <laughs> Praise God for a bad memory, right? So we bring our children to a point of fully owning their sin, the action as well as the motive. So we need to get down not just to I took, I'm sorry, or please forgive me for sinning against you by taking that toy. We need to get down to the point where what was the, what was the motive behind that? Selfishness. Not just the action, down to the heart issue. Again, we're trying to bring them face to face with who they are. They're not going to see the need for Jesus. If their sin is not painful. One of the fruit of the spirit is blessed are those who uh, one of the not the fruit of the spirit. One of the beatitudes is blessed are those who what mourn. I used to think for years that meant people who would mourn at a funeral. No, it's not what I was talking about. Blessed are those who mourn over their what their sin. Only those who mourn over their sin are going to race to Jesus. If you've supposedly come to Jesus but never mourned over your sin and still don't mourn over your sin, you need to ask yourself the question, do I know him? Has the spirit done a work in me or was it some people in church who were putting the pressure on me to pray a prayer or to become a Christian that drove me to, quote, become a Christian? Because that's not going to hold. That's not salvation. The work of Jesus and work of his spirit is to, bear, to drill down to who we are and show us who we are before God. To strip us bare and to lay us before God to where we see who we really are and we see our need. Okay? So this is what we need with our children. So instead of saying, I'm sorry, something like, I sinned against you by slandering you to my friend because I was jealous. Or I sinned against you by taking your favorite toy because I am what? Selfish. That's the reason I did this. It wasn't because I wanted it. That's a, yes, it is, but that's a superficial reason. So repentance, changing their mind, confession, they now need to be able to tell the people they've offended. And who would that be? That would be God. They need to be brought to confess their sin before God. They need to confess it to whoever else they've sinned against. They're you as the parent. And, and, we've got, and that takes some time to get to that point, doesn't it? Especially in the, first, in, the, in the beginning. It gets better as you move along. But in the beginning, it's going to take a while to get them to that point where they can truly in their heart see their sin for what it is and confess it. Okay? Third is seeking forgiveness. It's not even enough to say, I sinned against you by doing so-and-so. 
What's the next step here? The next step is that they asked to be forgiven. Confession of sins, not enough. We must teach our children to seek the forgiveness of those who have sinned against them. Would you please forgive me for this specific sin and wait? Would you please forgive me? I've sinned against you. Because there's two people involved in this, in this situation. You hurt that person. And they're going to have to deal with that hurt, aren't they? And if they don't deal with that hurt, what happens? What develops? Bitterness. Bitterness. Some of us struggle with bitterness. Because we've not forgiven someone And part of it is because they have never come and asked to be forgiven. There's been stuff done and there's no asking for forgiveness. So we need to teach our child to seek forgiveness. So it's confession. So right after the confession comes what? Seeking forgiveness. Daddy, would you please forgive me for disobeying you because I'm selfish? I'm sorry I hurt you. Would you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Now we're beginning to build, build back, aren't we? Or we go to my sister, you know, the sister, I'm sorry I pulled your hair because I, because I was angry. I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? What does that do now? Now the door's open, isn't there? We've now begun to open the door toward restoration, haven't we? To make things right. This calls for a biblical response from those people. We can't just say, oh, it's okay, no problem. No, it it was a problem. Sin's a problem. Don't tell people it's not a problem. If someone sinned against you and they come and ask forgiveness, don't go, that's no problem. Yes, it is a problem because who had to die for it? Christ had to die for it. So it is a problem that has to be dealt with. And it goes both ways. So we're teaching our children to ask forgiveness, please, and beg for forgiveness. And they should go to God and what? Ask for forgiveness. Even those who don't know Christ need to learn to begin to go to God and ask for forgiveness. Because that's the only place forgiveness comes from. God is the one who forgives. And to forgive sin, who is the only one who can forgive sin? Against God. God. He's the only one. Remember when Jesus was dealing with the, with the man with the shriveled hand? He says, which is easier, to forgive sin or to heal, heal this man? And the answer is, they're both impossible except if you're God. And he said, I forgive you. And here, let me show you, I want to heal, heal his hand. So we teach our children to go to God and to ask for forgiveness. Psalm 1 I mean, First um, John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the progression. Confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to teach our children how to become clean. And obviously that comes through Christ. But they need to learn to ask forgiveness. As Christians, remember God's forgiven. When God forgave us, he forgave all our sins. Past, present, and what? Future. They're all forgiven. That's a wonderful revelation. 
But what can that cause us, what can that give us a tendency to do? To become flippant. Oh, he's forgiven me. It's no big deal. Oh, it wasn't a big deal. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. The Westminster Confession states, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. So those who are Christians, God continues to forgive the sins of those. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, in other words, though they can never lose their salvation and, have, and not have the light of his countenance restored upon them, uh, they can't, oh, let's go back here. Yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith in repentance. So even as those who've already had all our sins forgiven, when we sin, what do we do? We still confess. Not so that we can be saved, because we're in his house now. He's our father. But in order for the relationship to be right with him, in a, in, a, in a more of a fatherly-child relationship, we confess, we acknowledge. Because we already have a default mode, which is what? To minimize and rationalize our sin, right? Well, he's, he's forgiven me before. It's not, not a real big deal. I forgot to ask forgiveness this time. You're not going to lose your salvation. But when you, when you treat sin lightly, you're not going to become like Christ. And we all have that tendency, don't we? To treat it lightly. To gloss over it. Instead of thinking deeply about it. And giving it to Christ. Okay, the next step, restitution. So we've asked forgiveness. But what if there's damages? What if we just drove through somebody's garage door? Thank you for forgiving me. See ya. <laughs> Got to be going. No, restitution is necessary. While we can never repay our debt to God for our sins, we are required by Scripture to repay as best we can those we've sinned against. So if we have gone around the church and said something wicked about one of our brothers or sisters in Christ, and we finally have been found out about that, and we go to them and say, I'm real, I am sorry I did this. I have sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? Are we finished? Even if they say, yes, you're forgiven. Are we finished? No, we're not finished. Because we took their reputation and we went to five people and made a statement that was false against them. So to make restitution, I need to go back to each of those people and confess that what I said to them was a lie, that I'm a liar, and that I'm a selfish and self-centered individual, and that it's not true. And would you please forgive me? And would you please try to erase from your memory what I said about this person? Let's look at Exodus 22, 1 through 4. <coughs> There's all kinds of principles through Scripture of restitution. In order for things to be made right, there must be restitution. 
brought to bear. 22, 1 through 4. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. This is restitution. You stole it. You killed it. You now replace five ox with the one you stole. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So the thief is required to what? Stop stealing and to return and repay what he's taken. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an oxen or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Or here's one, number six, verse six. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. We're responsible for our actions. If we have sinned against someone, we must as best we can, according to the scripture, provide restitution for what they've done. Lupriola Priolo says, when children have stolen or destroyed property, injured the reputation of another, or committed any other sin in which those who were sinned against lost something, correction involves making restitution. If you've done something to take away something from somebody else, you must make restitution. Or you're not finished. It's not just asking forgiveness. Because we have, to, we have to try to put it back as best we can to the way it was before we showed up on the scene. Okay? So restitution. Next is forsaking sin. <clears throat> okay, we've committed a sin. We have been convinced we need to change our mind about it. We've confessed it. We've asked forgiveness. We provide restitution. Now... We need to prepare so that we don't what? Do that again. We need to make serious steps to forsake that sin or what will happen to us again. Same thing. So you bring a new puppy home from wherever you bought the puppy. And within five minutes, the puppy's out of the backyard. He's transgressed. Okay, we don't just put the puppy back in the backyard again. What do we do now? We find out where the puppy got out and we patch that up. Puppy goes again, gets out of the backyard. We find within a matter of th two hours, all the possible places a puppy can get out of the backyard. And what do we do in each situation? We patch it and prepare it to keep it within the confines of what, of what we're doing. So forsaking sin, sin is so dangerous and is such a dishonor to God that we need to begin to make provisions so that we don't do this again. Forsaking sin. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. God just doesn't require a confession and go on your merry way. He requires us to turn away from it. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. That causes us to move in a different direction. And part of moving in a different direction is to forsake our sin. 
Now, some of us probably have the belief that we can't stop sinning in a particular area because we're just sinful. And may I say to you, sometimes that's because we've not taken this step to adequately forsake sin. We've still left provision for it somewhere. Many Christians don't find victory over sin because they don't like the struggle that's necessary to be set free from sin. We want Jesus to wave his wand over us, declare that we're forgiven, and then that we can go happily on our way and not have to deal with this. That is not biblical restoration in any way, shape, or form. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. This is in the passage where he talks about the Lord and how he disciplines us. Consider him who endures from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What does God expect us to do in this passage? Fight mm -hmm. to fight. To struggle, to give resistance to it, to wage war against it, to put off and to put on. He expects us to do war against our own sin. And he says, none of you have reached the level in your struggle that you shed your blood. None of you have paid that price. The only one who's paid that price is who? Jesus. In his struggle to deal with your sin, he bled and died. To solve the eternal problem of your sin. And he says, because Jesus died and suffered for your sin, what should be your mindset toward your sin? That we hate it. And that we want to forsake it. And that we'll do whatever we have to do to root it out of our lives. And may I say, brothers and sisters, that swimming in this culture, with all that it offers us, our, our resolve in that area is weak. It is weak. It's tepid. It's 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 just kind of well, I just I just fell into sin again. Well, really, what happened? Did somebody hold a knife to your throat? Oh no, I just went over and turned on the TV and watched this horrible movie I shouldn't have watched. It was really tough. I tried to resist. Really? Many of us ask God to forgive us for sinning against him and to help us not sin in the same way again while making no concrete steps to put off the old man and put on the new man. And guess what? Nothing happens. We fall right back into it again. Sometimes within the same day. Sometimes within the same hour. Sometimes within 15 minutes of what we just got through confessing. I want you to look at Ephesians 4, 17 to 31, and look at the putting off and the putting on. And we have to help our children in these areas. Ephesians 4. 
17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Okay, so we see the mind again, right? Can't keep walking that way. We've got to have a change of mind. The solution is what? The word of God. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learn Christ. This is the way the Gentiles operate, continually pursuing more sin. But this is not to be the case for you. 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And, to, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then he goes into it. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak what? The truth. There's no place in scripture where you're asked to not do something without replacing it with something else. Stop stealing. No, no, it's not just stop stealing. It's what? Work. So that you have something to give to others. Stop stealing and give. Stop speaking falsehood and what? Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you are angry, don't sin. And be careful that you deal with it by the end of the day. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief who no longer steal... But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Instead, do what? But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, do what? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we're called to forsake, to let go of, to leave, to abandon. Get away from it, forsake it. Let go of it. Have nothing to do with it. This requires the Holy Spirit within us. That's why he's called holy. He's the one that gives us the ability to forsake and turn away from these things. How do we renew our mind? We already said meditating on the word of God. So to help our children forsake sin, we need to teach them the following things. We need to call them to self-denial. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? What was Jesus' call in Luke 9, uh, 23? If anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow me. They need to learn to begin to deny themselves. Our whole culture is based on feeling. I don't feel like that. If you operate on feelings, you're never going to put to death the old man. You're never going to hold a job because you didn't feel like going to work that day. 
need to call them to self-denial. We need, number two, to help them remove those things from their lives that cause them temptation. Just like patching up the fence for the puppy, we need to help remove those things from them that are going to cause temptation. Three, put a structure in place that will make it difficult for them to lapse into sin. The purpose of forsaking sin is to make it more difficult next time not to be in sin. So if we have a man who's working and he's working beside a co-worker and he is being tempted in that situation to the point of committing adultery, what should he do? He probably should quit his job and go and get a job somewhere else. He should flee as Joseph did from Potiphar's wife, leaving his cloak and running. Uh, the third one is to put a structure in place that will make it difficult for them to lapse into sin. If your children get into all kinds of trouble when you're not home, guess where they get to go when you go out? They get to come with you. And again, first you help them put, you've put the structure in place and then you begin to help them see the need for them to put it in their own life. Because there's no way you can, we can monitor anyone 24-7, even though we try. And fourth, hold them accountable and check in regularly to see how they are in resisting sin. Wish I had a little more time to go into those. Maybe we can go into those the next time we get together. But we have to teach them self-denial. We have to teach them that they're to obey Christ and not their flesh. We have to teach them that when there's things that tempt them, to remove them. And we need to be careful as parents to, to remove them as well. I remember my pastor's wife many years ago, Miss Jeannie Seaborn, every piece of mail that came into the household, she went through it. And if there was anything that would cause her men a temptation, it got clipped. So you'd pick up a, a sports magazine, you'd be reading through it. There's a hole. You can see the person over there inside the room. There's all these holes in these magazines because she's been clipping. Because what was she doing? She was helping her young men, her men in her house to what? To forsake sin. Now we know this, and let's just, let's just leave on this note. All the forsaking in the world is not going to save you unless God does a change of your heart. And some people will get to the point they have to have everything forsaken because what? Their heart's never been regenerated. You've got to have a renewed heart. But even then, there are precautions and things we need to do to help our children to forsake this sin. We talked about our children. We talked about ourselves. How are you in dealing with your sin? How are you in the whole area of correction in your own life? Are you repenting of your sin? Do you, are you having a change of mind? Are you confessing your sin to those you need to confess it to? Are you asking forgiveness of God and those you need to ask forgiveness of? Are you providing restitution where it's necessary? Are you forsaking sin, making a diligent struggle to forsake sin in your own life? If the answer to that is no, there's a problem. 
we have either we're either an immature believer or worse we're not a believer we need to, we need to hang on these think about these things we talked about and the ultimate end is restoration a renewed relationship let's pray Father, we come before you. And Lord, I just admit as I've gone over this list, uh, Lord, I have been at times superficial in my own confession of my sin and the own dealing with my sin. Father, I pray that you give parents the grace to begin to deal with their children's sin in a deeper way to bring correction to their lives, to help them see the depth of their sinfulness. And to see the need of Christ. And Father, I pray for each of us that we would see sin in a new light. Based upon what Christ had to do to solve our sin problem. That it is serious. And that no matter what our nature wants to tell us about how it's not that big a deal. And it's not really that big of a problem. That you have a different diagnosis of it. Father, I pray you deepen our hatred of sin in our own lives. That we would make no provision for the flesh. Father, that we would run to Jesus for help. That we would teach our children to run to Jesus for help and for salvation. Well, Father, we're broken people. And our families are broken families. And dealing with sin is an everyday occurrence. Give us the grace to take the time to deal with it properly. That it might bring a change of life. And in many cases, salvation in Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen.